Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, YA is sponsored by Flatiron Books, publisher of Wild Tongues Can't Be Tamed, edited by Sarasia J. Finnell. Edited by The Bronx is Reading founder Sarasia J. Finnell and featuring an all-star cast of Latinx contributors, Wild Tongues Can't Be Tamed is an essential celebration of the rich and diverse Latinx community. The 15 groundbreaking original pieces by best-selling and award-winning contributors, including Elizabeth Acevedo, Mark Oshiro, E.B. Zaboy, will not only spark important dialogue, but also inspire hope. Hey YA episode 106. Today we are recording on November 8th, 2021. Welcome to Hey YA, from great new books to favorite classic reads, from news stories to the latest in on-screen adaptions. Hey YA is here to elevate the exciting world of young adult lit. Hey YA is a book riot podcast hosted by Kelly Jensen and Erica Ezefetti. Hello. So Kelly, how are you today? I uh I'm doing good, but mm-hmm. also um I've got an announcement, but first I want to hear how you're doing. I'm doing okay. I'll be sadder once you make your announcement, but it's (laughs) fine. It's fine. I'm just over here. You know, it's fine. (laughs) So after doing this podcast for a little over four years now, I was going through the old episodes when Eric and I were getting all the recording stuff set up and Mm -hmm. trying to find a date. It was September 2nd, 2017. uh, The first episode of Hey YA dropped and... I will be no longer the co-host on the show. I feel like it's ready for some new voice to jump in and to record with Erica. So listeners will likely be familiar with the person who will be replacing me, and that's Tirza, who covered for me during my parental leave. So her and Erica are going to usher this new chapter of Hey YA into something really exciting. And... I, as I was saying to Erica before, I can't wait to listen to the show mm-hmm. and not, like, worry about hearing myself on it. <laughs> it is so weird. Why is that a thing? It's like we sound like completely different people. Yeah. I mean, you hear yourself recorded sometimes and you're like, that's what I sound like. It's not because recording changes some parts of your voice. But right. Still, like, listening to yourself talk, at least for me, is, like, the most cringeworthy experience. It's so (laughs) cringe for me. You sound great. I'm like, oh, my God, why? No, you sound great, too. And that's the thing is it's, like, we're so much harsher on ourselves than we need to be. But legit, I am excited to hear y'all, you know, have your chemistry and your show. And I'll still be at Book Book Riot on the newsletters, like all the other YA stuff that I still do. But you may hear me pop around on other podcasts periodically. But I will no longer be part of this one on a regular basis. So jeez, man. Well, you are awesome. And you're going to do great because you have like stepped in and just stepped up. Like stepping into a show has to be hard to start with. But Making it even harder is that you're new to Book Riot. So, Mm -hmm. like, you 
have had to learn so much in such a short time. There was a lot I learned. <laughs> there yeah. was a lot I learned. <laughs> and and you'll still, you know, you'll be learning for your entire career here. Mm-hmm. And it's just like it's so cool as somebody who's been here a long time to watch somebody like really showcase their voice and to have that opportunity to like really show listeners and readers like who you are, what you like, like what your perspective is. So, I'm eager to see that even more. You know what, Kelly? You're kind of sweet. I'm going to miss well, you. once in a great while. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, always, uh, even behind the scenes, always super helpful and everything, helping that transition as a new person. You know what I mean? Be as, you know, bumpless as possible. So uh, do you have any, are you, are you going to take like just an immediate like break from podcasts? You mentioned being on other podcasts. Do you have any lined up so far? I don't know, but I figure, like, this is a good opportunity when somebody goes on vacation and needs somebody to pop in. Like, I have a lot more flexibility with that. But, like, I'll probably be writing a little bit more. Nice. Yeah, I've been doing a lot of new stuff on the site, Mm -hmm. and that hasn't slowed down, so... I suspect, you know. Um, yeah, that is uh, kind of a hot mess. Well, your coverage mm-hmm. of it is great, obviously, but the topics are Ugh. a yeah. mess. And yeah. I'm like, I think someone, one of the contributors brought this up on the Slack, which is our little um, discussion thing that we, you know, communicate with each other with, through. And she was like, is it just that I'm paying attention to it more or is it happening more? The censorship and book banning. Book banning has always been a thing, but... What do you think? Do you think that's like we're paying attention to it more or is it really happening more often? I think it's both. Mm -hmm. I think that it's happening more and a lot of it is very political happening at the school board level and a little bit at the library board level, particularly as these local elections become very like hot contests. Mm. The politics of books become sort of a a platform for um, a number of these candidates. And it's also that we're paying attention more because we're starting to be able to see trends as they come out because of this. And I was just today, it's Monday, so listeners will hear this on Wednesday. Mm -hmm. I had written about a group here in Illinois, I want to say in August, who were behind some pretty disturbing book challenges. Mm -hmm. And they were showing up to school board meetings, creating all sorts of intimidation. And now they just posted the three books that they are targeting at like all the local libraries and school districts. So it'll be interesting because this isn't as I've seen talk about a red state versus blue state thing. This is like legit groups everywhere are, are doing this. And I think Spreading the awareness that it's happening helps people be better prepared for when it happens. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, like the organizations that are doing this, and most of them are like very networked organizations, they have a lot of money behind them. They are able to also take their fights at a really broad level. So it's, you know, it's the the marriage of the two things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like, yeah, there's a lot of things. There are a lot of things going on with that. And I think it's interesting. You said a minute or two ago about how it's or rather this is what i gleaned from what you said but it's there's something like kind of easy i think in challenging books that mm-hmm. gets your point across politically yep and what's his name matt kraus i think he's a, an excellent yeah. example of that it is 850 book long and i love um danica ellis another book riot editor she wrote an extensive 
like analysis on that. And I, she made a comment saying how she probably put more energy into it than he did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because <laughs> it's like one of them, it's like um, there's, a I think, a queer series and like book four is yeah. questioned, but not the rest of the series. And it's like about lesbians or something like that. Don't quote me. Yeah, it was a very, like, even if you look at the list and the way that it was shared, it's like they clearly pulled some stuff from some library catalogs and lists and, like, shoved them all together. Yeah. It's just, like, this is an easy way to talk about parental rights Mm -hmm. without understanding that parents have always had rights. Mm -hmm. This is just their opportunity to say that their rights aren't being listened to when they haven't ever (laughs) once actually utilized their rights. And that's the thing that's, like, really hard to articulate, but, Mm -hmm. like, you see more and more, at least I have, I've seen more and more on social media from certain people who are like, you know, our parental rights are, you know, being overrun, blah, blah, blah. And it's like these same people have never once before talked to their teachers or do what they're supposed to do and instill in their kids, like, what their values are. And, you know, (laughs) so now it's like the easy blame is the books that are sitting in the library. And, like, when you you start to think about it, you're like, wow, that's, I mean, it's an easy scapegoat, but also Mm -hmm. how ridiculous it makes you look (laughs) that you won't take your responsibility. And instead are going to blame, it's, you know, there's a whole bunch of books. There's three big ones that are the targets. Mm -hmm. But you're going to blame those books that are just sitting in the library for, you know, all the issues that you think exist that don't really exist. That don't exist. And funnily enough, one more point on that is like, it's first of all, it's not like all of these books are assigned reading, which if they were, that's still another thing. That's a separate conversation. But it's like, like you said, they're just sitting in the library, just minding their bookish business, going about their day, collecting dust even in some of these libraries. And it's like your kids, for the people who are opposing these books, your kids probably wouldn't even read them unless they saw that identity within themselves, I feel. You know? Yeah. Or they hear it's a good book or, you know, like they pick it up. And this comes from working in the library. And I really, truly believe that, like, young readers are the best censors of their own reading lives. So when they're not comfortable with something or they're reading something that doesn't align with whatever morals or values they have, Mm -hmm. they'll stop. You know? That's true. If these parents were doing their jobs of teaching their kids these things, like, their kids would be fine. Yeah. These kids would know how to navigate these situations when they're like, oh, this isn't a book for me, or this is a book that I'm not ready for, and just, like, pursue it when they are, or when they feel ready for it, or they don't at all. And, you know, it stays in the curriculum, or not curriculum, but uh, circulation for... The students who do need those books and who are, like, eager to pick them up. Yeah. I, I sense the shade. Shade shots received. Shots <laughs> fired and received. It, if they were doing, if the parents were doing a good job yet. No, kids, I mean, a lot of, sometimes you have to, people want their kids to read more. So a lot of times kids are going to read what interests them, period. And even book banning is not going to stop. You know, we live in the age of the internet. Right. It is, you know, the year of our Lord Beyonce 2021. So um, <laughs> things, we have access to everything. And sometimes that's an unfortunate thing. But it's like if you're trying to stop your kid from seeing something and they really want to see it, they're going to see it anyway. <laughs> right. Yeah. Whew. I will link to, in the show notes, Danica's look at that list because mm-hmm. it's really fascinating. It and what she, what she talks about in terms of like broad categories and then the very out of left field titles that mm-hmm. are on this list is 
worth looking at to sort of give you a perspective on how outrageous these challenges are because they're going to keep popping up. You're going to see them more and more. And at the end of the day, it's it's a story, but it's a story with no real substance behind it. Which is so wild. But yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So let's get into our sponsor. Yeah. Tortine, publishers of All of Us Villains. All of Us Villains is a dark tale of ambition and magic from blockbuster co-writing duo Amanda Foody and Christine Lynn Herman. Every generation, seven families in the city of Ilvernath each name a champion to compete in a tournament to the death. The prize? Exclusive control over a secret wellspring of high magic, the most powerful resource in the world. This year, thanks to a salacious tell-all book, the seven champions are thrust into the spotlight and granted new information, new means to win, and most importantly, a choice. Accept their fate or rewrite their story. Thanks again to Tortine for sponsoring this episode. So the first topic today, we're going to get into some YA short story collections. Kelly, would you like to start us off? Sure. I was thinking about this as a topic because I've read a couple of really good short story mm-hmm. collections this year that came out this year and was like, you know, we should talk about that a little bit. Now, for me, it's a mix of anthologies of different authors as well as single author collections. Right. So there's a little bit of, of everything. And like the thing that is so great about short story collections is if you don't like something, you can skip it and find something else you like. That's a very good point. Yeah. I won't say most of them, but many of them are not interlinked. So you don't have to worry about like if you skip one that's not doing it for you, you're going to miss something crucial. And when it comes to collections where there's a ton of different authors, it's really nice to kind of get to taste test voices that you might not otherwise pick up on your own, like a new voice will be completely Mm -hmm. introduced to you. Or in the case of a couple anthologies here, there are some authors who haven't published a whole book, but Mm -hmm. have published, you know, online or published short stories. And so being able to like learn their voices and stories too is awesome. Did you want me to go first? Do you want to go first? Yeah, you can start us off. All right. So the first one is what I just finished, and that is Vampires Never Get Old, edited by Zoraida Cordova and Natalie C. Parker. Uh, This was a really fun collection of fresh vampire stories from a really wide range of awesome YA voices. So the book is structured in the way that each story stands alone as opposed to them being interconnected. And then after each one of the stories, the editors have a really short note about the uh, vampire mythos from which the story is inspired. And it's this really great way to get both the story as it stands, plus then some bonus insight like, oh, I didn't realize this was a take on this myth, or I did realize it was a take on this myth, and I really like how they played with it. And so handful of the stories that I loved in this collection included First Bite by Victoria Schwab, which was optioned for adaptation. Um, And it follows a girl who is falling for another girl, one being a vampire and one being a slayer. So it plays into this tension of romance uh, amidst that of instinct. And then a couple others I really loved were The Boys from Blood River by Rebecca Roanhorse and In Kind by Kayla Whaley. They really landed with me, and I feel like this anthology does a good job offering a really wide range of short stories, some that'll work for a reader and some that won't. And if you 
into vampire stories at all, this is great vampire reading, and you got a nice range of like dark stuff right alongside funny stuff. And that is Vampires Never Get Old, edited by Zoraida Cordova and Natalie C. Parker. That sounds really good. I wonder, hmm, with the first bite, like when a short story is optioned for adaption, and this is just my ignorance speaking, is it like they turn it into a show? Well, I mean, I guess I'm thinking of the length. I guess they could turn it into whatever. Yeah, it's going to depend, you know, totally on the story. And this particular one, I could see how they can turn it into a full length film so that was kind of cool going in knowing that that Mm -hmm. story was optioned and being able to be like okay i can see how they can get you know from this short 20 page story like a whole a whole film out of it no that does make sense a vampire and a slayer it's like okay Mm -hmm. you've got the Mm -hmm. i don't know what what trope is that killer versus prey (laughs) pretty much (laughs) killer versus prey romance trope a classic clearly (laughs) you know um but that sounds really good um, the first one I have is Color Outside the Lines, Stories About Love, edited by Sengu Mandana. Okay, so this has to be one of the most inclusive anthologies ever. Although mm-hmm. I don't even know if I can really say that because I feel like YA writing is so inclusive now. It's getting way better for sure. It's super inclusive. And it could be, I say now, because as I've mentioned before on the show, I'm starting to pay more attention to it because of this show. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, like I said like I said before, I would, you know, read it here and there, but I'm like, it's super, super inclusive. So this anthology, it is about the complexity of interracial and queer relationships and how, how beneficial they can be beneficial in terms of there's going to be some misunderstanding, but there's also going to be some understanding and some learning and some love and all that good stuff. You've got stories that have everything from black girl vigilantes, Chinese pirate ghosts, a garden of poisons, and much more. The queer stories account for about one third of the collection and are told with care, of course. And the ethnicities and religions that are included here are, among others, Latinx, black, Jewish, Chinese, Palestinian, Moroccan, Indian, like I said, many more. It does a great job of not only talking about cultural differences, but as I mentioned a second ago, also recognizing inequality when it presents itself. I love that it does so too with interesting stories like pirate ghosts and other mm-hmm. fantasy elements that I really love. Um, some of the authors featured in this anthology are Samira Ahmed, Adam Silvera, Eric Smith, Anna Marie McLenore, L.L. McKinney, and a few others. And I, again, really like this because I like all of the fantasy and all of the weird things. And it has something for everyone. And I also think it's interesting to, like, when talking about race and stuff, especially interracial romance, I think we've seen, or at least I've seen a few instances of, like, white and non-white interracial romance. So it's interesting to see how other races date. Because Mm. there are still issues of race and discrimination within other races, you know, outside of white people and non-white people. So that is interesting. And again, that's Color Outside the Lines, Stories About Love, edited by Sengu Mandana. My next pick is Blackout by Danielle Clayton, Tiffany D. Jackson, Nick Stone, Angie Thomas, Ashley Woodfolk, and Nicola Yoon. And this is a blockbuster lineup, very blockbuster short story collection. Oh, yeah, for real, for sure. (laughs) These six stories are about 
black teens falling in love, and it takes place over the course of a few hours in New York City, where the summer heat has caused a citywide blackout, and now without light, a lot of interesting truths will emerge. So, in this one, all the stories are distinct, but they are all tied together with the idea of the blackout, and there are periodic intersecting secondary characters and a giant Brooklyn block party that happens. So each story stands on its own except for Jackson's, which is broken up across the book, mimicking the way her story is about a long walk across the city. Each of the stories is distinct, as are the characters, and there's a really awesome range of romances represented, queer and heterosexual, and a really awesome range of gender identities as well. Some of my favorites in this one were Thomas's story of a girl trying to choose between her longtime boyfriend and a new boy who has caught her eye while their class is on a trip from Mississippi to New York City, which tackles what it means to make these choices and how a triangle might not be what it seems in terms of who gets picked. And then Yoon's story about a girl who takes a ride share and connects deeply with the boy who is driving her. And it tackles things like philosophy, grief, and the non-traditional post-high school paths. And then I also, I really, really loved Woodfolk's story, which is set at an elder care facility with the way she weaves in intergenerational relationships and the diversity of those relationships, you know, old folks aren't all straight either, was just really, really fabulous. All of the book, all the stories in this were awesome. Those were three of my favorites. And that is Blackout by Danielle Clayton, Tiffany D. Jackson, Nick Stone, Andy Thomas, Ashley Woodfolk, and Nicola Yoon. That is quite the blockbuster lineup. Seriously. I mean, I, dang, I mean. <laughs> you you can sell the book just by saying yep. who's in it. Yeah. That's it. You know, that's all you need. You're like, all of them? Okay, say less. Say less. Right, right. I, I like how romance um, has love triangles. And I'm like, I don't have, I never had geometry in my romance. I don't know if I, that like, who, <laughs> I'm like, triangles, I'm just trying to do a straight line from point A to point B. You see what I'm saying? I'm like, I don't have geometry in my romance. Who has that? Who has that? And it doesn't work. Who has it in real life? I love to read about it, but I'm just like, you talking about it just now. I'm like, who has that? Kelly, do you have it? Tell me. I I do not know. (laughs) Okay. I'm just like, I'm just like, maybe it's just me. I don't know. No, it is not. (laughs) I, I honestly think one of the reasons that it's such a, like, it's such a hotly contested, like, trope. Yeah. Part of it is it's such an interesting, like, I don't want to say wish fulfillment, but like an interesting place to think about, right? Like, what do you do if you've got two people? And then at the same time, there are the people who are like, who does this happen to? Like, this isn't realistic. And it's like, I think there's a nice medium, right? Right. No, that's true. And I don't even mind it being not realistic because, again, uh, sci-fi, fiction, fantasy, ghost pirates and all that. I'm totally (laughs) into not realistic. But I was just thinking, like, is this real for some people? Because clearly I'm slacking. But good to know that (laughs) no one else has trigonometry in their love life. That's fine. (laughs) I I just wanted to make sure I wasn't missing something. (laughs) No, you're not. (laughs) Good to know. Good to know. Okay. So uh, my next book is Toil and Trouble, 15 Tales of Women in Witchcraft, edited by Tess Sharp. And it is only natural that I would gravitate towards something like this with this this type of title and this type of subject matter, of course. So the 15 stories here feature all types of witchy heroines from different races, classes, sexualities, religions, geographical locations, and even different times. There are stories that are historical, contemporary, and even futuristic. So it's like they got everything covered. 
I like that it's not just a one note thing. It explores the witch as an outcast, which history has usually labeled witches as. I think that is almost synonymous with outcasts in a way in Mm -hmm. antiquity, if you look back. History shows that they have been typically independent, unmarried, educated, and just generally unwilling to fall in line with the status quo. And I like that, as I mentioned before, they're not one note. So witches here are presented as real people, meaning they are not just good and they're not just bad, which is to say, you know, they're regular people. And in that, that is a very feminist stance, I think. The idea that, I mean, a lot of witches are presented as women, but just the fact that People are seen as complex as opposed to one note or a stereotype is, you know, a move towards equality. So among the stories, there is a Bruja love spell that has some unexpected things happen. Three sisters who are orphaned and must prophesize for an evil, murderous king. And there's a story that shows the results of ignoring an attraction and love held for another witch. So, you know, don't hide your feelings. Among the authors are Jessica Spotswood, Brandy Colbert, Zoraida Cordova, Andrea Kramer, and a few others. Again, that is Toil and Trouble, 15 Tales of Women in Witchcraft, edited by Tess Sharp. That was a fun collection. Mm -hmm. I really like that one. Yes, get into it. (laughs) My next pick is Lips Touch Three Times by Lainey Taylor. And I think about this book a lot, and part of it might be because Taylor's career really took off afterward with her fantasy series, and maybe uh, many don't know about this award-winning short story collection. It's been out for quite a while. Um, It has three short stories, all which are supernatural and center around a kiss, which changes the kisser's life. It's also illustrated by Taylor's husband, Jim DiBartolo. So the first story is a take on the goblin fruit mythos, followed by a short story about a demon and a curse. And the final one follows a 14-year-old girl as her life changes forever, thanks to a fanged man and a band of demons. As you can expect with Taylor's writing, the prose is lush and it's super evocative. These are imaginative fairy tales and readers who haven't picked this up yet or are itching for delicious supernatural tales will want to grab it. You don't have to read any of her other books. This is a standalone short story collection. And that is Lips Touch Three Times by Lainey Taylor. I'm such a weirdo. You had me a goblin fruit mythos. You didn't have to go past that. I was like, oh, <laughs> I, my, my, my eyes went up and like, goblin fruit mythos? What? And illustrated, like, oh, super shoot. fun. And it's illustrated? Oh, yep. forget about it. Forget <laughs> about it. All right. So my next one is Black Enough, Stories of Being Young and Black in America by Ibiza Boy. So this is another collection that celebrates diversity. And in that diversity, I feel like we find a marginalized group here. It's obviously Black people who are, again, shown to be more fully fleshed out human, human beings. So similar to the witch book, By that, I mean the diversity of experiences shown here show just how many kinds of Black people there are. If that sounds strange for me to say, it's because, as I mentioned before, marginalized people are typically stereotyped and pigeonholed and seen as a monolith, which has disastrous results. So with this collection, we have Black kids as nerds, as queer, as immigrants, as the children of immigrants. We have artists, kids grieving and succeeding, and all of those, all things in between that those things that I mentioned. It shows Black interconnectedness and traditions and what those things mean for Black teens today. There are 17 authors featured here. And for the most part, the stories are realistic, 
But there is a speculative story in Rita Williams Garcia's story called Woe. Um, there are stories by Jason Reynolds, Aaliyah Henderson, Tracy Baptiste. Um, Tracy Baptiste actually writes a story that has a Me Too element. It's not specifically about the movement, but someone who gets involved in the movement and stuff like that. And so many other, there are so many other contributors to this as well. Now, while this collection does a lot and shows a lot of different perspectives of the Black experience, there aren't as many stories for disabled characters, but I hope to see maybe another edition of this or something similar. And it's somewhat understandable as it's hard to get every single Black person's experience, you know, so. Mm-hmm. And then that's part of the point. We all come from different backgrounds and perspectives. We all have different perspectives and stuff. And there are so many experiences just under the umbrella of being Black, so... Here's to looking for that. Again, this is Black Enough, Stories of Being Young and Black in America, edited by Ibiza Boy. So my last pick is Up All Night, edited by Laura Silverman. And I haven't read this yet, but I plan to. And I note that because I picked this one up, like, I'd been wanting to read it for a long time. And then it was on sale last month, two months ago, for, you know, a dollar or two on Kindle. So I was like, now is the time. Uh, So the premise of the book is that all these stories take place between dusk and dawn. And given the roster of authors included, I suspect the range of types of stories will not be disappointing. Uh, So there are stories about prom night and ghost hunts and heartbreak and adventure. And some of the authors include Nina LaCour and Brandi Colbert, two of my favorites, as well as Maureen Gu, who is another favorite, Julian Winters, Kayla Whaley, and more. It's sitting on my e-reader, like I said, and I think I might read this during the winter solstice, given that it is the day of longest night. It seems to make sense to read a short story uh, collection set at night then. Mm. Uh, and that is Up All Night, edited by Laura Silverman. That sounds like a plan. Mm-hmm. Winter solstice reading kind of sounds romantic in a way. Like I'm, a little I'm, bit, I'm, yeah. yeah. Very yes. Okay, my last one is Meet Cute, Some People Are Destined to Meet by Jennifer L. Armentrout. As his title suggests, there are a lot of cute stories here that deal with teens, when teens first meet and sparks fly. But there are some stories that don't necessarily have happily ever after endings. And I think that keeps the collection from being just overly sweet, but it still is satisfying, satisfying as far as something that's titled meet cute. (laughs) Um, It also kind of shows how sometimes romance is temporary and it's just for the moment and that's fine. Just like it's fine if you don't have geometry in your romance. (laughs) So um, in this collection of 14 short stories, we have diversity in terms of sexuality. We have girl meets girl. We have trans girl meets girl as well as other non-heteronormative meetups. There are things to help you feel granted in grounded in modernity. I guess I should say modern dating. You have things like reality TV, meeting through social media, computerized dating services, and things like that. There's one story in particular whose meetup I found particularly entertaining, which was about two girls meeting in California. And they meet because of a petty customer service tweet. <laughs> of all the things <laughs> to meet by. The authors included here are Danielle Clayton, Nina LaCour, Ibiza Boy, Nicola Yoon, Catherine McGee, and others. So again, that is Meet Cute, Some People Are Destined to Meet, edited by Jennifer L. Armentrout. So we will hop into our second sponsor. And funny enough, this one fits with the next theme. And mm. I didn't know that. But that's not a bad thing at all. So our next sponsor is A Face for Picasso by Ariel Henley. 
and this is a YA nonfiction book. At only eight months old, identical twin sisters Ariel and Zahn were diagnosed with Cruzan syndrome, a rare condition where the bones in the head fused prematurely. Growing up, they underwent numerous procedures that changed their appearances and saved their lives. While the physical aspects of their condition were painful, it was nothing compared to the emotional toll of navigating life with facial difference. In this poignant young adult memoir, Ariel speaks to her truth on her own terms, exploring sisterhood and the strength it takes to put your life and yourself back together time and time again. Thank you to A Face for Picasso by Ariel Henley. And that leads perfectly into our next topic, which is new and forthcoming YA nonfiction. Do you want to start this time? Yeah, for sure. I'll start off. And I think, I feel like you mentioned that book before in another episode, didn't you? I may have. Did we do? I think, so. I think we did YA memoirs, didn't we? Yes. I think I mentioned that one. That's, yeah. yes. That's a good one. <laughs> yes. So my first one I have is Disability Visibility, Adapted for Young Adults by Alice Wong. One thing I love about this book is it's not this able-bodied inspiration masquerading as disability visibility, to use the title of the book. It's not overly saccharine and sweet. Here there are 17 essays that are written by disabled people that offer insight into their lives. So able-bodied people can see what it's like to be disabled and can hopefully be moved to action in terms of helping with awareness, activism, or whatever other way we can help as able-bodied people. And also disabled people, and for this edition specifically, disabled teens can see themselves in the stories as well. So you have Haben Gurma, who was the daughter of Eritrean immigrants who came to this country as refugees. She's the first deaf-blind person to graduate from Harvard Law School, which, of course, is amazing. It's amazing to graduate from <laughs> Harvard Law School, period. I mean, I didn't do it, so, you know. Um, <laughs> I don't know if I could, you know, so shout out to Haven. But her, her essay isn't just about overcoming insurmountable odds as a disabled person. Her essay is actually about her deep relationship with her guide dog. Super sweet. <laughs> so you don't have this, again, you don't have this made-for-TV movie about a disabled Black woman who is so inspirational, you know, something like that. So another story is about Jeremy Wood, who is a white man, and talk. he talks about his experience as a deaf ASL speaker and how, I guess, how his experiences were uh, when he was incarcerated. Mm. So this is in, and of course, there are many others. So it's just two out of 17 essays by disabled people. So this is an entry into a category of books I hope will be expanded upon within the next few years. Definitely pick it up. I actually have a story. I have a friend who is interested in law school. So Haben's story is interesting because he told me about how he went to take the LSAT or whatever. So he told me about how I believe there are blind people who are like an, you know, organization, organization's name escapes me at the moment. But basically there's a part of the LSAT that you have to see in order to complete. Mm. And so they're suing the LSAT to take that off. And I had no idea. And I think it's called logic games or something like that. And it's like, they have to draw these weird pictures to get some, to come to some logical quote unquote, logical huh. conclusion. I'm like, what does it have to do with court rooms? Yeah. What does it have to do with law? But okay. So that thing, that, particular aspect of the test has been barring blind people from exploring law as a you know a means to sustain themselves to get self-fulfillment and i'm just like that it should be criminal like i don't even know you know that's just part of that whole standardized test says you know helping to maintain the status quo etc mm -hmm. etc but that is something i found out recently and i and i um think it's just relevant to this book 
but definitely look that up if you are interested in reading about that. Again, this is Disability Visibility by Alice Wong. I read the adult version of that one and can't wait to read the YA one because I it was so good. Mm-hmm. It offered so much good stuff. So my first pick is Blackbirds in the Sky by Brandy Colbert. And this is, no question, a must-read book. And I'm so thrilled that it is showing up in Target stores, which is something oh. that, yeah, that YA nonfiction doesn't see happen a whole lot if it's not like a tie-in or a franchise-related title. But this one I saw at multiple Targets near me. So Colbert crafts an immersive and painful reality of the Tulsa Massacre of 1921, weaving together the history of Oklahoma, Tulsa, Black history, and how what happened on June 1st echoes through today's world. Why was this incident hidden and quote-unquote forgotten for so long? Included are some photographs as well. Personally, I knew a little about the Tulsa Massacre massacre before reading this, but like any good nonfiction, I suddenly needed to know a whole lot more when I finished the book and found myself like falling down this deep, deep rabbit hole online. Super fascinating, super well written, and also a vital piece of American history that needs to be talked about more. And that is Blackbirds in the Sky by Brandy Colbert. That is definitely on the list. And again... I wouldn't say I'm conspiratorial. I feel like being black in America kind of makes you conspiratorial at a certain point. Well, they would uh, have to. Yeah. So we are a conspiracy-based um, people because, <laughs> because we've seen it firsthand and just hearing stories yeah. from our parents and grandparents and stuff like that. But it's like, it's so it's so wild that that has been hidden for so long. And it makes you think of like, okay, what about the things that weren't documented but happened? Yeah. Hmm. I just was reading about, this is a little bit of a tangent, but mm-hmm. I will I will get to the point. I read this book after I read Brandy's book because I'm really fascinated by the history of Cairo, Illinois. It's the most southern town in Illinois. And okay. it's had an absolutely terrible history, particularly when it comes to how it's treated black residents. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you're going to research anything about this, all the trigger warnings for everything terrible that has happened. Oh, my God. Yeah. But one of the things that was really interesting is that a number of the black residents decided to leave Cairo and build their own town right next to it called (laughs) Future City. And so, like, as I'm reading this book, and I'm I'm not going to tell you the name of the book because it's like, You'd have to be a real like geek to to dig into this one, and it's it's older. It's like it's yeah. from the eighties, so mm-hmm. um, some of it's a little outdated. Although, like the story of the town has not changed a whole mm-hmm. lot since then. But it's like as soon as I read about that, I was like, I want to know more about that. I want to know more about these places. Um, there's a book that came out last year, I believe it's called Soul City, which is about uh, a black utopian community, I think in North Carolina. And oh. it's like, yeah, you start discovering all these stories that just like, why haven't they been told before? We know the answer about why they haven't been told before. Like, that's a rhetorical question here. Yeah. But like, I, I read the book about Cairo after, after Brandy's book mm-hmm. and just was like, I, you know, these histories show up again and again and again. But why are we not also hearing about, like, these ways that Black people have resisted? Yeah. And, you know, because that is also American history and needs to be shared and talked about and not just the trauma narratives. Exactly. And it's interesting that there, I mean, a lot of, you know, racist people 
some of their um, jargon or whatever they say, it's like, oh, go back to X, Y, Z, or y'all are on the, you know, system and this, why don't you get your own, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, well, throughout history, we have tried to get our own Mm -hmm. and we have gotten our own. And then you came in because we live in your minds rent free and you came Mm -hmm. in and messed it up. So it's just interesting. Like that completely shatters that whole idea. Toni Morrison wrote a book, I think, called Paradise that has to deal with a black utopia. I haven't read it. So, and obviously that she didn't write YA novels, but mm-hmm. um, it had to do with a black utopia. So you saying black utopia, I'm like, okay, I might have to get into that. So it's interesting. It's interesting to think about too, how these places might have progressed had they been left alone. If, if racist white people were really true to their word when they say like, oh, we don't want y'all around here. So go make your own city. And we do that and they leave us alone and yep. instead of like pillaging and killing us. But yeah, so that is super interesting. I'm definitely going to check that out. <laughs> what were we talking about? Oh, yes. We were talking about, we were talking about YA nonfiction, yes. but like, uh, good nonfiction sends you down all these yeah. rabbit holes, you know? And so it's like, yeah, this felt like an unrelated topic, but it's related to this bigger thing that you're thinking about and like wrestling with or like desperate to know more about. No, that is totally related. And how was it spelled? Was a city spelled like the Egyptian city? Yeah, it oh, is. Wow. It's, just, it's, it's pronounced Cairo, though, mm-hmm. which is a whole thing in and of itself. Because um, <laughs> yeah. I was like, wait, she said it differently. So I was like, wait, maybe it's not. Maybe it's not no, spelled like it that. It is. It is. Okay. Like that whole that whole area, um, it's at the confluence of the Mississippi and the Ohio River. Mm-hmm. And that whole area is known as Little Egypt. So oh. like there's yeah, there's a whole bunch of um communities there that have names that are from Egypt, but they what? pronounce K- yeah, they pronounce Cairo differently. <laughs> that is so interesting. Illinois is different. Illinois is built yeah. different. And I know that yeah. I haven't been, I have a friend from there, but yeah, so that's that's yeah, I have to investigate that. Let's just say. And, yeah, there's whole communities in this state that, like, you know, it's part of Southern Illinois is still very, I don't want to say still, but was very much like the South. Mm-hmm. And, and so there were a lot of sundown towns and oh, a God. lot of, you know, stuff that I think some people forget. Like, mm-hmm. it's not just Southern states that you know, have a reputation. Like, Let me get on my soapbox because yeah. I've mentioned before I'm from the South. Yeah. And yes, people are very racist or can mm-hmm. be. I'm like, but I've traveled to the Northeast and y'all are raggedy up here too. What are yep. you talking about? <laughs> yep. What are you talking about? <laughs> and it's even like if being from the South, I thought that people were more progressive and more educated, et cetera, you know, in the Northeast, New York, New Jersey, whatever, Connecticut, whatever. And I get here and I'm like, y'all are just as right. Ra- y'all are ra- more raggedy. Well, f- <laughs> Nashville is somewhat progressive. I'm like, y'all are worse than there. What are you talking about? Like the public schools here are, <laughs> let me not. But I'm just like, <laughs> and I think a good, a good, good physical representation of what we're saying right now is look at the U.S. map for people who voted for Trump, the red versus the blue. Cause I mean, we know Trump ran on a campaign of just racism. Like he didn't have any plans yeah. for anything. He was just like, you know, build a wall and that was it. No policy. Yep. He wasn't even trying to pretend to have a policy. Right. Sis was bold. He came out. He was just like, this is what it is, what it is. You know, so anyone who voted for him, I'm like, well, y'all, because other people would at least try to pretend like they had some kind of policy they wanted to do, you know, other bigoted people, whatever. 
bigoted politicians. Anyway, so you see red all up and down all over the United States. So that whole idea that, you know, it's just the South is annoying when I hear it. Totally. (laughs) Yeah, it is. And I think anybody who is from anywhere in the U.S. can spend a little time researching the histories of their state and be able to be a little more conscious of the uh, stereotypes they hold and also, like, pause for a moment and understand, like, one, all this land is stolen. So that's, you know, if we're going way back, like, let's start there. But, you know, yeah. And that's a great segue into my next book. Ooh. (laughs) Wait, who? I forgot. No, you just went. Okay, I was like, wait, that was a good tangent. That was a good tangent. That is a good segue. My next book is Everything You Wanted to Know About Indians But Were Afraid to Ask, The Young Mm. Reader's Edition by Anton Troyer. So as we're speaking, I mean, you know, we celebrate Native Americans 24-7, 365, but it is Native American Heritage Month. And this is a perfect time to learn more if you feel like you need to learn more, which I definitely do. So it starts off by just answering a lot of questions about Native Americans and Native American culture that people that people ask. Uh, some of the questions are, why is there such a fuss about non-Native people wearing Indian costumes for Halloween? Hmm. Mm-hmm. We're still asking that question, but okay. Yep. What's it like for Natives who, do, who don't look Native? Which was interesting. Troyer himself is Ojibwe and is a professor, and in this he writes about current events like the Black Lives Matter movement, the Dakota Access Pipeline protest, as well as the Native American sports team mascots, which is another wild thing that still I, I can't believe exists in this day and age. The whole idea of a whole group of people being a mascot for a sports team, especially because I don't don't even watch sports ball. But, you know, (laughs) so I'm especially turned off. I'm like, oh, it's useless to me. And you're being raggedy. No, thanks. Um, He also talks about COVID-19 and the implications it has for Native Americans and everything like that. I like that he mentions how all cultures have darkness to them. Mm -hmm. So there's no need for guilt as far as what your ancestors did. But... With that said, there still is a need for understanding. So you can't shimmy out of that. (laughs) Again, that is everything you wanted to know about Indians, but we're afraid to ask. Young Readers Edition by Anton Troyer. My next pick is Feminist AF, A Guide to Crushing Girlhood by Brittany Cooper, Chanel Craft Tanner, and Susanna Morris. Uh, This one just showed up a few weeks ago at my house, and I haven't gotten a chance to read it yet, but I am super looking forward to it. If the name Brittany Cooper is familiar, it might be because she's the author of Eloquent Rage from a few years back, and she has brought a lot of Black feminist ideology into her work, which is what makes this particular look at feminism so appealing. It doesn't in any way center white feminism or the distraction of choice feminism. So, you know, do you keep your name when you're married or not? Do you have kids or not? That kind of stuff. Instead, it's a guide for girls, trans girls, non-binary folks, and others who need actual guidance on dealing with everyday things. So I'm going to read the description because it's going to do better than me. What do you do when you feel like your natural hair is ugly or when classmates keep touching it? How do you handle your self-confidence if your family or culture prizes fair-skinned women over darker-skinned ones? How do you balance your identities if you're an immigrant or the child of immigrants? How do you dress and present yourself in ways that feel good when society condemns anything outside the norm? 
covering colorism and politics, romance and pleasure, code switching and sexual violence, Feminist AF is the empowering guide to living your feminism out loud. And that is Feminist AF, A Guide to Crushing Girlhood by Brittany Cooper, Chanel Craft Tanner, and Susanna Morris. I love it. The title even like, and it's mm-hmm. super important to obviously talk about white based, you know, racism as well as racism and discrimination within communities mm-hmm. of color, which is a real problem. So I'm here for all of that. <laughs> um, the next one I have is Man Called Horse, John Horse and the Black Seminole Underground Railroad. This is a little on the younger end of YA. It's a story about a man named Juan Caballo, which if I tap into my one semester of Spanish can translate to literally John Horse as the title suggests. So, you know, that was, you know, worth those uh, hours in college. Uh, (laughs) John Horse was a Black Seminole chief, warrior, and diplomat. His story is that of a descendant of, or rather, he was a descendant of free Black people, people who had escaped enslavement and who had formed an alliance in Spanish Florida with Seminole Native Americans. His story is one of activism and fighting U.S. government. He defended his people from the U.S. government, other tribes, as well as people who were hunting for enslaved people. So in other words, slave catchers, which is such a, again, another wild thing to think about. That reminds me of um, Colson Whitehead's Underground Railroad when they were like looking for people. Anyway. So his descendants actually worked with the author to assemble this book of his life and his time as a freedom fighter. So again, the name is Man Called Horse, John Horse in the Black Seminole Underground Railroad by Glennette Tilly Turner. My next pick is The Overground Railroad by Candace Taylor. This one comes out January 4th, and it's the young reader adaptation of Taylor's book for adults by the same title. So she did the adaptation herself, and what's immediately noteworthy is the cover features actual young black kids on it, which I love. So The Overground Railroad is about the history of the Green Book, published between 1936 and 1966, which was the road trip guide for black people throughout America. It showed uh, where there are safe places to eat and sleep, as well as visit. And in a time when segregation was the standard norm. Uh, What this book does is highlight how brave it was for a lot of these institutions to be listed in the Green Book because it was a political stance against discrimination. So the book uh, includes archival interviews, photos from Taylor's own experiences and research, and it digs into why the Green Book was such a tremendous tool of its time. As we're talking about travel and places throughout the United States, uh, this one seems particularly fitting as well. And that is The Overground Railroad by Candace Taylor. Not to be too tangent-filled this episode, <laughs> but I kind of feel like that still, like I've talked to my other Black friends and, or like my Black friends, and we've discussed how we kind of maybe need an updated Green Book. I wouldn't be surprised, especially like given... How I don't want to say politically divided because that's such a like cliche phase, but I know what realistically, you, mean, you know, realistically, like stuff's not good for y'all. Yeah. So you know, uh, being able to have a resource that you can go to and know that like those are your safe bets to stay and to know like where discrimination is not just accepted, mm-hmm. I think is such a necessary and I hate saying that word, but yeah. like necessary tool. Yeah, and I mean, it could be adapted, like, it could be, like, the Green Book blog. We literally had a conversation with, actually, the friend, my friend who's from Chicago, funnily enough, 
But it's like, yeah, we definitely talk about, especially as black women, we talk about like, okay, I would not go here. I'm mm-hmm. not going here. And I, if I go here, I'm not going out at night. So, and then you know how you have all these stories of police brutality still, and then even brutality against black people that's not by police, but like okayed by police. So mm-hmm. it's like, yeah. So those are my thoughts on that. With that. Yeah, for sure. My last book is Star Child, a biographical constellation of Octavia Estelle Butler. Okay. By mm-hmm. Ibiza Boy. Ibby is just all up and down the, our show today. For to real. Say. She is That's awesome. doing it. Yes. I know this is going to be super popular. And if it isn't super popular, I'm going to be very surprised. This is, as the title suggests, a biography of the young life of Octavia Butler and is going to be told in poems and prose. I don't have much experience with reading novels. Like with a mix of poems, I feel like I either read poetry or just, you know, prose. But so that's going to be an interesting read for me. I haven't read it yet, obviously, especially since this is biographical. Butler was born into the space race and during the beginning of the civil rights movement and fans of her know that she touches a lot on themes of race and gender equality and colonialization and all that stuff. So I think it'll be super interesting to get into what inspired her to be, you know, the groundbreaking science fiction writer that we all know her as today. Plus the cover looks really cool. Just throwing that out there. Mm -hmm. Uh, Again, that is Star Child, a biographical constellation of Octavia Estelle Butler by Ibi Zaboy. And my last pick is Notable Native People, 50 Indigenous Leaders, Dreamers, and Changemakers from Past and Present by Adrian Keene. So I learned about this book months and months ago. And as soon as I did, I put a hold on it on the library website. I waited for it. It came in for me. I didn't get to the library. It's been sent back to the library it came from. Womp, so, womp. I know. I know. Story <laughs> of my life. But I'll re-request it because it's out now. Yeah. But I I hit and miss on collective biographies, and sometimes they can fall into the trap of highlighting the same people over and over again. Right. But this is what I'm really excited about because I've read so few like collective profiles of native folks, and this one has 50 of them. It includes a wide range of Native folks, including people like 19th century sculptor Edmonia Lewis, who was the first Black and Native female artist to get international fame. And it includes more contemporary folks like Jesse Little Dubaird, a linguist who revived the Wampanoag language. So not only are there profiles, but the book also includes insight into Indigenous issues, colonization, food sovereignty, land and water rights, and so much more. It looks amazing. That is Notable Native People, 50 Indigenous Leaders, Dreamers, and Changemakers from Past and Present by Adrian Keene. That sounds so good. It's illustrated too, right? Did you say that? Yes, oh, I think so. It's yeah. so pretty too. I'm very yeah. superficial, clearly, with books. <laughs> like, oh, it's so pretty. <laughs> but but sometimes that's important. Yeah, like, that's, that's a true. thing that draws a reader in sometimes, you know? Like, you watch a TV show because it's pretty too mm-hmm. sometimes, even if it's like not a story that you would otherwise like sink into you're like but the visual elements are Mm -hmm. important too because that's how we take in stories yeah and i think it's it's important like that artists are getting their shine yes for sure shall i do the sign off since it's my last one yes kelly no (laughs) kelly no don't leave me kelly You will get to work with Tirza. It will be awesome. Yeah, that's true. That's true. She's (laughs) great. Okay. (laughs) 
Thank you all for tuning in this week. As always, you can leave feedback about the show on Apple Podcasts to let us know how we're doing and to help other people find us. Don't forget to visit bookriot.com for newsletters, more podcasts, and all things bookish, including our insiders program. Thanks again to today's sponsors for helping make the show possible. And thanks to our awesome audio editor, Jen Zink. You can follow me, Kelly, on Instagram at HeyKellyJensen. And Erica, where can people find you? Find me on Twitter occasionally at Erica, (laughs) E-R-I-C-A underscore E-Z-E underscore. And Erica and Tirza will talk to you in two weeks. Erica will be back with you next week. Until then, happy reading. Happy reading. Happy reading.